Welcome, everybody. This is Ben and Cynthia Bailey coming at you again from the kitchen table, and we are covering the story of Joseph this week in The Promised One. This is week nine. What comes to mind when when you hear the story of Joseph? Well, Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and I don't really know why. I've just, ever since I was a kid, loved him. Maybe it was the Sunday school flannel graph images where you'd always <laughs> see him and just the idea of this little, always had the image of this little picked on kid who gets beat up by his brothers and then thrown into the pit. <laughs> and then he comes back to, to conquer and, and to rule. And, and Joseph's story is often used to illustrate, you know, some great moral lessons like, mm-hmm. uh, don't brag around your brothers, they'll beat you up or, don't be jealous like they were, or in situations of temptation and lust, you need to run, you need to flee. So lots of like moral lessons for young men, the way to be industrious and you can be successful and achieve in any situation. You can find a way to forgive even those people who've hurt you deeply. Mm-hmm. So why do we spend so much time in Genesis? There's like 13 chapters dedicated to Joseph. So why why has such a large section of Genesis been dedicated to Joseph? Yeah, it is interesting that he gets so much airtime <laughs> and uh, and some of it's those moral lessons. But really, I think what this is an exercise of biblical theology where we're trying to put the whole Bible together and trace the redemptive themes and see Jesus in every section. And so I think when Jesus was on the road with the Emmaus-bound disciples and he was unpacking how every portion of Scripture pointed to him, he probably didn't you know, point to the moral lessons in Joseph's life. I think what he would have shown them is that Joseph's life is actually setting the pattern. The primary way scripture teaches is through patterns and symbols. And so Joseph's life is setting the pattern for what a deliverer, uh, the path a deliverer must take. And then he's also setting the pattern for how we are going to experience that deliverance. So Joseph was the great deliverer, but he's a deliverer who we see is rejected by his own. In essence, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. You see that the path he has to walk is suffering before glory. Rejection before acceptance. Humiliation comes before exaltation. And this is the path that Jesus has to has to walk. This is a path that all those who follow him have to walk. I'm thinking of the line from Martin Luther King Jr. where he says, God has designed it. So um, the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. And this is the path we see, or the pattern that we see in Joseph's life. Mm-hmm. So I think the best way to kind of move through this section, because it's a large section in Genesis, what we'll do is let's just highlight three of those redemptive patterns that we see in Joseph's life that then is paralleled by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we can see Joseph is the beloved son, and in Jesus we have the true and better beloved son. You know, we see Joseph is a faithful sufferer, and in Jesus we see... the ultimate faithful sufferer. Yeah. And then Joseph is the exalted savior. And in Jesus, we see the ultimate exalted savior. Yeah. So let's think first about the beloved son. Okay. And so Joseph comes on the scene in chapter 37. And anytime you're reading narrative, uh, especially in the Bible, that first scene where they introduce the characters are so important because they're setting the stage for the whole story. Mm-hmm. And chapter 37 is going to set the stage for the whole rest of the book. And 
to actually get us into the heart of the drama. All right, we haven't really been too successful in coming up with a theme song for <laughs> our podcast. But as I was thinking about it, all right, all right so listen to that. This actually could be the theme song for the Joseph hmm. narrative. So you, you listen to this and you tell me what you think. Life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. And I was young and unafraid. Mm. All right, for all the men listening, set the stage on what. where does that song come from? Who is that singing? Oh, it's from Les Mis. So this character is Fontaine, and um, she is a character who has been just the victim of just almost immeasurable suffering. She's just broken at this point in the, um, in the story of Les Mis, and um, she's broken physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, on all fronts. And her dreams have been dashed. Yeah, that's a haunting song. And I think one of the most haunting lines in the song is at the end when she sings, uh, sings, now life has killed the dream I've dreamed. Mm -hmm. And really, Les Mis, that story, is a beautiful, powerful story that's a famous novel, a famous play, a famous movie. It's one of the reasons that it's so moving and powerful in multiple cultures, mm -hmm. like in in. French and English and for generations is that kind of the narrative arc of the life of Joseph really could be compared to the narrative arc of Les Mis. I mean, mm. the, the, these deep questions of um, like for Jean Valjean, is it possible to spend 20 of the best years of your life rotting in prison? And can that be redeemed in mm. Fontaine? Can you have these dreams as a child of this wonderful life and then they get shattered? Is there mm -hmm. any way possible that they can get put back together again? Mm -hmm. And chapter 37 is setting that narrative arc for Joseph. I mean, Les Mis is so powerful is because it's echoing the the these powerful themes of this story and so the question that's going to set up in chapter 37 you're instantly introduced to deep family dysfunction and you're introduced to someone who's given these dreams um, and they're not like Fontaine's dreams in the sense just dreams for personal fulfillment they're much more powerful mm -hmm. they're dreams about redemptive history and but he's given these dreams and it they appear to get shattered so can these things get redeemed and put back together again? And the two major themes that run through Joseph's life, is God with me? Is he with me through the darkness? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the themes. God is with him. No matter how low he goes, God, or how much pain he suffers, God is with him. And the other theme is what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And so it's going to take 13 chapters to get there, but Joseph gets there. It takes him 20 years to get there, but he can look at those and his brothers and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of the story. So all of that is set up in chapter 37. Um, you know, when you're reading through the Bible, you want to key in on uh, the key words. And so of chapter 37, the word brother 
is used 21 times. So you're, you're meant to be drawn into brother. But what mm-hmm. you're seeing is these people are not acting like brothers. Mm-mm. I mean, in some ways, this is a story of like Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. Oh. <laughs> but you ever go to like a Phillies game and you'll realize you're not <laughs> around very loving people. And so this is supposed to be a story of brotherly love. But I didn't know that about Philadelphia. Yeah, you learn something every day. Fun fact. Here's another little fun fact I learned this week studying this chap, uh, this section, and I'd never seen this, but there's actually another element. It's not just dysfunctional family from a relational standpoint mm-hmm. of like, you know, nuclear family. Um, when God gives the promise to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, uh, verse 11, there's the inst- each time God reiterates the promise, things are added. Mm-hmm. And he adds this word this time that not only will a nation come from you, but it will be a company. Mm. A company will come. A company of nations. And you think, all right, what, what's he talking about there? A company? Like, are they going to start yeah. a business? Is it going to be like the Coca-Cola company? Is gonna start? What do you mean, company? Well, the first thing that pops into my head is like a company. You know, like in an army, they call those like groups of army guys. I think, right? A company. I love it. Those army guys. Yes. The soldiers, <laughs> so we sorry. call them. Um, all of you wonderful soldiers out there. I'm uh-huh. so sorry. Yeah, easy company. Uh-huh. So you can call a company. <laughs> um, yeah, the the word is actually kahal, and that's an important Hebrew word because it's the word for congregation, the gathering. It's actually the word we translate church. So this is to be the kahal, the company, the congregation gets gathered around Sinai to enter into the presence of the Lord and worship. This is a worshiping community. So this, this, the way the brothers are tearing apart is not just a family tragedy. This is a church tragedy. They, they're to be a worshiping community. But in chapter 37, you can see the dysfunction, and it's that Jacob loved it says in verse 3, he loved him more than his other sons. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 4, and they hated him for it. History's repeating itself. Jacob's it is. favoring, just like he was favored. It's like, why did why does Jacob do that to his children? Did he not I mean, learn? He does the very thing to them that no. he received. But that's just so scary because that's what we do, too. You know, we, yeah. re- you know, we repeat what is familiar to us. Yeah, generational sin is mm-hmm. so powerful. And even without knowing, we pass on the sins of our, our fathers. And I think mm-hmm. one of the most heroic things we can do in the power of grace is to break those. Mm-hmm. Try and you become aware of it and you fight to break it. Mm-hmm. But another thing we see in chapter 37, it sets up the dreams. And the dreams are going to be a por- an important part of the, the narrative arc. So here's Joseph's dreams. And, you know, again, these aren't dreams like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, a baseball player one day. It's dreams about how God's going to bring about the redemption. Um, so they're redemptive historical dreams. But it's the dreams that sustain Joseph throughout his life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, in essence, what he knows about how God's going to orchestrate redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and then dreams become central in, with the chapter with the baker and the cupbearer. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, dreams are central for um, Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And it's important to see um, one of the consequences of sin is separation. And you can see separation, um, how it subtly throughout the generations, uh, we're becoming, there's an increased distance between God's children and God. So God walked with Adam. God spoke, uh, in essence, face to face with Abraham. And then now it's becoming, Joseph only encounters these things through dreams that then have to be interpreted. So there's increasing 
in essence, distance between how God is speaking to his people. Um, but what we what we see here in chapter 37 is that Joseph is, he's the beloved son. And that's part of the significance of the coat of many colors. You know, the coat of many colors is not just some stylish, fashionable wear. Like, <laughs> oh, look, Joseph is the favorite. He gets the best Christmas present. He gets the, you know, he gets the leather jacket and everybody else has to wear the members only thing. And, <laughs> Uh, the, I mean, it's it's a royal robe that then symbolizes his ruling status in the family. Mm-hmm. So it's something that should go to the firstborn. But Going back to Joseph's dreams, how at what point do you think Joseph knew that these dreams were coming from God? Probably from the very beginning. I don't know. I think. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and it's interesting. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Like, how did he know these were specific revelations about the future versus just some random dream about, you know, a purple hairy elephant that I saw. Or, you know, some <laughs> random, <laughs> you don't have random dreams about purple hairy elephants. Oh okay. Um, so like this one, and then same with the cupbearer and the Pharaoh, like he instantly knew these are the, these actually dreams might not be the best way word. I mean, maybe the better word would be revelation. Mm-hmm. This is God revealing to him what he's going to do. Okay. And so Joseph is the, the beloved son. And I think, you know, when you're reading 37 and 38, you have to be drawn into how terribly bloody and dysfunctional this is. I mean, like when his, his brothers, they strip him, they beat him, they throw him into the pit and leave him for dead. And he cries out in his anguish to the ones who can save him and they don't, they ignore him. Mm-hmm. And then it's, they think they're doing an act of generosity and humanity to then make some money off of him. Like what Mm -hmm. good is it if he dies? Let's at least sell him for 12 shekels Mm -hmm. of silver. But you can see some of the parallels that, you know, Jesus is the ultimate beloved son who's going to be, he's confident of God's plan of redemption. He also was stripped of his clothes, thrown into the pit of despair and death. And he cries out uh, with tears to be saved. So Jesus is life is paralleling the life of Joseph. And one way we see that is Jesus is the true beloved son. Mm -hmm. Um, Another way we see the parallels that Jesus is the ultimate faithful sufferer. Mm -hmm. Um, Joseph throughout his life, after he gets sold into slavery and then for um, nearly 15 years, and the great power of this story is God's promise that even though you're suffering, it's not meaningless. Mm -hmm. It's not random. It will not be wasted. Mm-hmm. And another song it reminds me of is that line from the Andrew Peterson song yeah, where he says, you know, in essence, you have a different view of the rain when you have seeds in the ground. Mm-hmm. And he's going through the storm, but it's going to produce, he's going to be fruitful. Mm-hmm. There's going to be fruit that uh, comes from it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you can imagine after Joseph has these great dreams as a 17-year-old, um, there is no way that he would have thought that they will play out like this. I mean, there's no way he thought that the way these things are going to play out is I will spend years as a slave in a foreign prison. Um, This is not the trajectory he would have planned out for his life. Mm -hmm. And think in our culture, the years he lost were the years from 17 to 30. Basically, he lost the the 20s decade. Like in our culture, it touts that as... You know, the greatest years <laughs> the of your life. Days. Those are the glory <laughs> days of pleasure and no responsibility. And and he lost them all. Mm-hmm. But what's the key to the story is the absolute conviction that God is with him, God is working in him, and God's going to work through him. Mm-hmm. 
And then it comes to the end. You can see this in chapter 41 at the very end. There's um, kind of the powerful resolution of that dark decade in his life comes by the way he names his children once he's been elevated. Yeah, yeah. this is so interesting. So why does he name his sons Manasseh and Ephraim? Tell us what they mean and why... Why does he name them these names? I thought you might key in on the names. I love names. You love the baby names. Now we covered this like several podcasts ago, but man, I love names. And so yeah, I mean, Manasseh was not on Manasseh was not on your list of <laughs> names. No. Yeah, I mean, he named so literally he names them forget and fruitful. Mm-hmm. So you were forget and you were fruitful, and um, so when he names the one child forget, God has made me forget. Mm-hmm. That is an incredible declaration of faith. Mm-hmm. So this is not like absent-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're, oh, my kid, where's my kid? I forgot him. Is he, you know, he's <laughs> he's running out in the yard. So this is not about absent-mindedness. Mm-mm. It's that God has not allowed him to be eaten up with bitterness. Mm-hmm. That he will not live, like he's gone through tremendous trauma, but that trauma will not define him. Mm-hmm. That he will this not, is a declaration of God's grace in his life. He's yeah. allowed me to forget uh-huh. the suffering. Yeah. And God's power, the power of grace, that um, I will not live in the light of these painful memories. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I mean, the reality is hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. So people who have been hurt respond by hurting mm-hmm. people. And this is a reality that it's going to stop. Um, he, God has made me to forget. And this is... The power of grace is that it can reshape your memories and it can actually restructure your past by putting it in the context of God's future. Um, so he still has the scars, but the scars can become testimonies or trophies of grace. Mm. And it's God has made me forget the pain, but what I never forget is that God is present in the pain mm-hmm. and that it's his faithfulness to make it fruitful. And that's the other name that God... God will make me fruitful. Mm-hmm. In the land of the affliction, he will bring about fruit. And you just see, it's so it's such a powerful gift to be able to put your painful moments of your past into a new redemptive context. Mm-hmm. And that's what Joseph is doing here. This suffering is not random. It's not wasted. He will be fruitful in the land of his affliction. And it's really worth pausing for people who are in the land of affliction and think this is God will make me fruitful in this season. Mm-hmm. And this points to the true and better faithful sufferer. I mean, Joseph was a faithful sufferer, but it's laying a pattern for our Redeemer. And there's never been any suffering greater than the suffering Christ took on on the cross. And there's never been any suffering that was turned to a greater good mm-hmm. than what came through the suffering that Christ took on mm-hmm. on the cross. Amen. And then the, the third way we see Joseph's life parallels the life of Jesus is that he then becomes the exalted savior. Mm-hmm. So after that great reversal, um, so his life is one of an incredible reversal. Now it's fascinating that the reversal happens in a day. Mm-hmm. Like he goes one day from being on the bottom to being on the top. Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. yeah. But it's kind of like the old saying about, uh, overnight successes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they were an, o- an overnight success. That was 17 years in the making. Like, <laughs> One day his whole life is turned, but this is a turn that's taken 15 years to to bring about. And one that he was finally ready for. God didn't allow this great flip to happen until Joseph was ready. Right, right. He needed that 17 years of suffering. Yeah, because that 17 year, that 
that those years of suffering deepened him mm-hmm. and made him humble. It made him wise. It made him generous and caring. And and one of the keys, one of the parallels that we see, just as Joseph becomes the exalted, in essence, savior of the nation. So he he becomes the savior of Egypt and then the Israelites or Jacob's family and the surrounding areas. But some of the parallels is that um, Joseph's exaltation was not for himself. It wasn't so he could, you know, he could become great, but it was that so he could be a blessing and a source of life to the world. And um, at that day, the only way you would survive is if you came to him to find your bread. And it's the same with Jesus, that Jesus' exaltation was not for himself, but it was so he could be the savior of the world. So he could stand and say, I'm the bread of life. And if you are going to survive, you come to me to find life. The whole world must come. Mm. But there's some differences that Jesus doesn't sell his bread to the highest bidder, but he gives freely to the famished who can't pay. And in Joseph's story, you see him now reigning and his brothers come down, but it's no longer, you know, everybody has been broken and um, is going to experience grace. And this is really what we'll key in on next week is how the family gets restored and the brothers get put back together again. But when they come to Joseph here, now he's, he's mature. He's, he, he, there's a depth there. But I think one of the questions to ask is, all right, how can we develop that deep confidence in the midst of the darkest suffering like Joseph had? It's one of the things that just is so moving to me in the story is just how multifaceted suffering is. So, you know, there's the suffering that is self-inflicted and you bring upon yourself, but mm-hmm. but there's also just the suffering that we experience just from just the brokenness in our world, just the manifestations of how sin just breaks our bodies down or it breaks relationships down. So just loss when people lose loved ones to to disease and sickness or tragedy where suffering just hits you and it's not anything that you have done. It's just been brought upon you and just how you deal with that. Just the Fontaine song of just most of her suffering was inflicted upon her. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you see in Joseph's life, I mean, some of it could have been self-inflicted. Like he was a pompous, arrogant kid and that had to be broken. Um, But then there's the, the episode with Potiphar's wife and he was doing the right thing. And then he has to suffer for that. And then there's illustrations all throughout the Bible of um, just sin shattering people's life um, from the outside. Mm -hmm. And it's part of just the power of grace that it's so powerful and multifaceted that it can redeem all of them. Mm -hmm. But I love that truth that you can cling to, that it's never wasted. It might in the moment feel pointless or like this is just meaningless. Why is this happening to me um, type of a feeling? But we really can cling to in that moment, it's never wasted. So how is God using this? How am I being shaped by this? Yeah, and I think the great hope that it's not wasted is because of the resurrection. And so if Mm. Christ was still in the grave, then you could say that's unjust suffering and it just ended, but he Mm. rose victorious, triumphing over it. Mm. And that's why, I mean, like Fontaine's song in the beginning, you really, like the 
the gospel can rewrite that song. Mm. And that's the power of the gospel. It can rewrite those songs. Like she sings, life has killed the dream I dreamed. But then the gospel says, no, it's not life that killed it. Sin killed it. Mm. But grace will heal it. And then that that haunting line that I dreamed that love would never die and God would be forgiving. No, the gospel is that love did die. Mm. Love himself died so that gospel or God could be forgiving. Mm. That we actually don't, we can't receive forgiveness without the death of love. And so now it can cause us to dream a new dream, mm. a dream about redemption and about restoration and that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of Joseph's story where he comes to at the very end, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm. And this story of Joseph, it points us to our great hope. And so Joseph could be confident that there is no shame, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering that cannot be overcome. Amen. Mm. No guilt, no shame. No curse, no chains, new life you gave. Redeemer, my debt is paid. My soul now saved. Oh God, you came. Redeemer. We sing a better song. The gospel gives us a better song. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening, guys. Have Have a a great great week. week.